Bookstack, the new books and ideas podcast from American Purpose with me, Richard Aldous. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, where you can subscribe to the newsletters and find details of how to register for our forthcoming Zoom events. Coming up on the show today, Francis Fukuyama, American Purpose Chairman and Director of the Centre on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law at Stanford University. He'll be telling us all about American Purpose and his essay on liberalism and its discontents. He's also added a new afterword to the latest edition of The End of History and the last man, so we'll be asking him what's changed more than 30 years after he first asked if we're living at the end of history. Uh, Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be back on. So liberalism, Vladimir Putin says it's obsolete, is it? Well, I don't think so, but it depends on what you understand to be liberalism. Uh, in the United States, liberalism has a specific ideological connotation But I think that um, behind that stands a much longer tradition that I would label classical liberalism. Uh, You know, classical liberalism really is several centuries old. It arose in the middle of the 17th century at the end of the European wars of religion. After the Protestant uh, uh, Reformation, uh, Europe was involved in a series of religious wars that were extremely bloody. Uh, in which, you know, maybe a third of the population of Germany were were killed as a result of either the war or starvation uh, or other effects. And um, as a result of that uh, extended trauma, the founders of modern liberalism basically argued, we need a way to um, live together. We need to be able to govern in religiously diverse societies, but we can't do that if every prince says that a certain religious uh, doctrine is going to dominate uh, and and be forced upon uh, the people that live in my territory. And I think that this is basically the origins of this idea that a liberal society ought to allow people to practice their beliefs, but they have to do it in private. They can't bring it into public, and in particular, the state cannot force people to be a certain way or ascribe to a certain a set of beliefs or ideology. And so <clears throat> really it's a it's just a practical uh, mechanism for uh, allowing a, a government to govern over diversity uh, and to put aside the really big issues of the final ends of life that religion um, uh, talks about in favor of a kind of live and let live uh, society in which you know you and I can differ on those, important questions, but we will agree on rules that will allow us to uh, to work together and indeed to govern together uh, in a society that eventually would evolve into one that was self-governing based on uh, democratic choice. And this is why I find, you know, what Putin said very annoying because, you know, there are certain asks, you know, so Putin is not a liberal. <laughs> he, he really has these very authoritarian tendencies, but in the Russian Federation, there is a liberal element. So the the the, the Russian Federation citizenship law does not say you have to be Orthodox uh, or an ethnic Russian in order to qualify for citizen. Uh, they have a liberal understanding of who is a member of their community, which they really have to have because they've got several tens of millions of Muslims and you know Protestants and and other. Uh, religious uh, 
uh, sects, you know, that have adherents living on the territory of the Russian Federation. And if he were to say, well, but what it means to be Russian is basically to be an ethnic Russian Orthodox, uh, it would be the source of unending conflict. And uh, he doesn't want that. And so you've got actually a liberal component to, uh, you know, the nature of the Russian Federation. And it's not obsolete at all. If you want social peace, I think in a way you have to accept this liberal framework because our societies today are de facto very, very diverse. We don't agree on the most important things about life uh, and we're not gonna be able to coexist uh, if we have to come to agreement on them. So that's, you know, I think the origins of modern liberalism and it's something I think is very important for governing uh, any kind of modern society. So it's a it's about managing diversity in a pluralistic society, as you say, the state not telling you what you have to think or believe. Tolerance, I suppose we'd right. call that. But you described it as being a very pragmatic solution, and I wonder if that's a weakness as well as a strength, because of course people find it hard to get passionate about pragmatism and common sense. Well, that's uh, really one of the problems that's emerged in recent years. Just take the example of Eastern Europe. So I think that if you live under a dictatorship as in Belarus today, or the way Hungary or Poland were uh, while communism was still a going concern, uh, you wanna live in a liberal society. You know, you don't want the state following you, surveilling you, uh, telling you what to think, uh, dictating the curriculum in schools, uh, mandating all sorts of things without you're having any say. And so I think people that lived in those authoritarian systems really wanted to live in a liberal society. But once that happens, once you make that transition and you can come and go and you can travel and you can criticize the government and you can do this and that, uh, you know, over time, I think it becomes uh, uh, not enough uh, that you want more. And in particular, if you disagree with people over you know, important, what you regard as moral issues, you say, well, this is terrible because, you know, there are all these people with these terrible views on all sorts of things. You know, abortion is a kind of classic uh, example of that, this severely divided uh, American society. And you begin to wish that you lived in a community that had stronger values. Um, you know, religion is one of those issues, but also, um, uh, ethnicity and 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 race can become the basis. It's a little bit more legitimate to talk about that as a basis for national unity in Europe than it is in the United States because of our history of slavery uh, and Jim Crow and racism. But you know, many European democracies were founded as the home for a certain uh, culture. You know, uh, whether it's German or French or Estonian or Lithuanian or Polish, uh, in a way the struggle for democracy was tied up with the assertion of a separate uh, ethnic identity. And, uh, you know, in many respects that was seen as a very legitimate uh, aspiration. But the problem is that, you know, in an increasingly diverse world, it's very hard to say that you can only be a member, a full member of your society if you belong to the dominant ethnic group. And I think that's really the, you know, the issue we're facing in many modern democracies today. 
Although it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, Patrick Deneen has been very persuasive on the idea that liberalism fails anyone with a deeper moral commitment. So that idea of a vacuum. And, and I noticed that recently he's pointed to exactly that failure uh, in the treatment of Amy Coney, uh, Coney Barrett during uh, her, the hearings around the Supreme Court. So you, what, what do you make of that critique from the right about this sense of a, of a moral vacuum in liberalism? Well, look, it's understandable, but it's just completely unrealistic. You know, I mean, if I were a conservative Catholic that had these deep moral commitments, I would be very unhappy living in American society where people don't agree with me, but they don't agree with me, you know, and they're still my fellow citizens. And I'm, you know, it's, it's impossible to imagine the United States returning to a kind of early 19th century America, where everyone is Christian, everyone is not just Christian, but they're all Protestant, and they all, you know, have a certain kind of confession, they all go to similar kinds of churches, that just isn't going to happen. Uh, and so yeah, it's it's thin. And um, you can see why people would long for that kind of moral community. But that's just not the society we live in. And we're just not ever going to go back to it. And as a result, uh, you know, I think you need to accept a a kind of liberal compromise uh, where uh, at least you are not prevented from uh, practicing your own faith. Nobody is stopping Patrick Deneen from going to church or, you know, arguing the positions that he's argued. Uh, uh, but, you know, he's got to allow other people to make different kinds of arguments given, you know, given the diversity of the society we're in. But does he does he not argue that liberalism, because it sanctifies individual autonomy, that that's its fatal flaw, that essentially liberalism ends up eating itself? Well, uh, you know, it depends on how far that autonomy is carried. Uh, you know, I, I describe this at much greater length in my book, Identity, you know, where this idea of autonomy uh, comes from. I mean, I think it's ultimately a Christian idea. Uh, you know, in the book of Genesis, uh, well, okay, let's say Judeo-Christian idea. So in the book of Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve uh, actually achieve a intermediate moral status because Eve eats from the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So knowing good and evil means that they have moral choice. They're able to pick uh, good over evil, and then they make the wrong choice, and that's why they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. But I think, you know, starting from that beginning, the ability to make moral choice uh, is at the core of what we regard as human in this Judeo-Christian tradition. Martin Luther King, in his famous uh, speech in uh, I Have a Dream speech, said, I'm looking forward to a time when Little American children will be judged based not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their characters, meaning their ability to make good moral choices. And so I think that it's deeply embedded in all of the, you know, the doctrines that someone like Patrick Deneen takes seriously, this idea that we are moral agents and we can choose uh, between right and wrong. The problem is, well, and, and, and essentially, if you think about modern democracy, uh, there's this, you know, it takes on a secular form where 
you know, people should have the right to vote. They should have a right to select their leaders and not simply be told uh, what to do by people higher than them, right? So this is a pretty basic uh, value that I suspect he would accept, uh, you know, many versions of. The problem, I think, today is that it's been carried to an extreme where uh, because we don't agree on the broader moral framework, we broaden the meaning of moral choice and autonomy to be to mean not just the ability to follow moral rules set by the society, but to make up our own moral rules. And there's a long history to this. I mean, I think actually Nietzsche plays a very important role in you know, recognizing that the Christian consensus of Europe had broken down at some point in the 19th century, God is dead, uh, and therefore, you know, I can be God. I can, my my autonomy is such that I can actually make up the moral rules that I'm going to live by. Uh, and that becomes a theme, you know, in a lot of 20th century thought, uh, this kind of extreme form of moral autonomy. And that is what becomes really problematic because if I can make up the rules about right and wrong, <laughs> we're, you know, <clears throat> we're not going to agree on on that. Or, uh, you know, in the case of fascism, if I'm stronger than you, uh, my autonomy is going to lead me into simply imposing my views on you. Uh, and that uh, is what led to a lot of problems in 20th century, uh, 20th century politics. And so there are good and necessary forms of autonomy, and there are excessive uh, and, and socially destructive forms of autonomy. Um, so that's, you know, that's the, that's the problem. I mean, you need to define what the limits of human autonomy are. It's interesting that, I mean, we were talking there about a critique coming from the right. Uh, you also, in the essay, talk about um, the left. And you say that the issue here is not whether progressive illiberalism exists, but rather how great a long-term danger uh, it represents. What's your instinct about the answer to that question? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think that the danger from, you know, let's say woke progressivism, is that uh, it often tends to become intolerant. Uh, it demands, you know, positive agreement uh, and assent rather than, you know, accepting a, a, a principle of tolerance. Uh, and that's what leads to cancel culture and things that go on in certain, you know, right now what I would regard as relatively elite circles like universities or Hollywood or the arts and so forth, and that's illiberal, and therefore I think it's 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 really disturbing. The question, uh, really, for the future is whether um, this is going to expand beyond those precincts and begin to affect politics as a whole. Right. So, people on the right are very worried about the fact that this kind of intolerant left wing. Um, illiberalism is going to affect, you know, school curriculums, uh, <clears throat> that you're going to force to be taking classes in anti-racism, and that this agenda uh, deepens into, you know, essentially uh, the state dictating uh, uh, what your children uh, see and hear. And, you know, there's cases where that's happened in, 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 uh, in certain areas. 
Uh, whether this is really going to continue to move in that direction uh, inexorably, which is what I think many conservatives assume, or whether this is going to be uh, a, you know, something that occurs in certain relatively narrow, uh, rather elite circles, but doesn't spread beyond that is one of the big <laughs> questions for the future. And I do not have an answer to that. I mean, a lot of people are certain either that this is a very limited phenomenon or a self-limiting phenomenon, or that uh, it's a danger to basically Western civilization. And I think right now, I don't want to you know, venture a guess as to which of those it is. Yeah, you don't uh, have an answer, but you definitely um, kind of stake out what the implications are. Right at the end of this essay, uh, you say that discarding liberal values can only lead ultimately to a return to violence as a mean to resolving differences. So the rejection of pluralism uh, really does or could lead on to something quite dreadful. Well, I think we're already seeing the beginnings of that in our politics. Uh, it's so polarized. Uh, and there, you know, as the summer has gone on uh, in 2020, you've seen outbreaks of violence that have been instigated both by people on the left and by uh, people on the right. Uh, I think right now everybody is worried about whether you can actually pull off uh, a peaceful election because people are so mobilized uh, around um you know, what they perceive as existential threats to their uh, way of life. Uh, so it's very possible that this, you know, in, in the coming uh, weeks and months, uh, if not days, could escalate into something that is actually uh, uh, violent. I suppose the other the other flip side of the coin is, I mean, for example, should President Trump lose the election, it would have only taken one election cycle to change the narrative, arguably, with Joe Biden right back to a kind of 20th century New Deal kind of liberalism. I wonder whether you think historians may look back and say, well, why was everyone getting so excited? What was the fuss about? <laughs> it's possible. Um... So I have to uh, credit Bill Galston, uh, one of the people that's helped found the uh, American Purpose um, with this. Uh, you know, his uh, speculation is that this election actually could be a realigning election, uh, like the 1896 election. Uh, if in 1896, you had William Jennings Bryan running against uh, uh, William McKinley, uh, and uh, McKinley won uh, the Republic, you know, the control of both the Congress and the presidency had flip-flopped between the Republicans and the Democrats uh, for the preceding 20 years. But finally, the country made up its mind and the Republicans ruled for the next 16 years. At that time, the Republicans were the more forward-looking urban, industrial, northeastern party and the Democrats were the rural, agrarian, small town people that wanted to cling to America's um, uh, agrarian past. Uh, the party positions have, have you know, switched uh, since that time. But in many ways, the kind of uh, broader economic and social issues were very similar about these two different visions for what America should look like. And it's possible that, you know, what we're going to see is not just the latest version of this continual flip-flopping and indecision and uh, gridlock, but, uh, you know, a more fundamental shift um, 
uh, in favor of, you know, at this point, it, it looks like the, uh, the more uh, liberal version. Uh, but again, that's something we don't know. Certainly, if that happens, it's not going to be evident for some time. Uh, because even though the election may be quite decisive, I think uh, many of the uh, current Republican Party are not going to go peacefully. And, you know, I think there'll still be a lot of uh, contestation for, for a good long time to come. I mean, it's interesting. This is this is something that you've focused on really for your whole career, trying to step back and to see how contemporary events fit into the bigger picture. I, I was very struck in reading the new afterword to the end of history, where you know you're still asking where is the modernization process, aka history, uh, pointing, and I wonder where do you think it's pointing? Well, um, the only plausible alternative, and I've been arguing this for the last 25 years, the only plausible alternative right now is in, a, in terms of not an imaginary society, but an actual society is China, uh, which is definitely not democratic, but is also very successful in terms of economic growth, social stability, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that if China continues to grow, it continues to be stable. At some point, you know, we have to say, well, democracy is not the only answer, you know, that there is this other uh, alternative. And if you can make it work, maybe in certain ways, you're going to be a more successful society. Certainly, the COVID pandemic has not done any favors for the prestige of democracy or people's view about whether this is really a good, you know, political system to handle this kind of a national uh, emergency. Uh, so that, you know, is really the only competitor I see. I mean, the other alternatives like some form of Islamist theocracy or some kind of, you know, sloppy, um, uh, semi-authoritarian, you know, populist nationalist regime, uh, I think in the end are not going to end up as very successful uh, types of societies. Uh, so in that sense, I still think that liberal democracy, if you can get there, is you know about the best deal you have going. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I was struck that, I mean, you wrote this uh, new afterword right at the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And, you know, right there, you said that you think the real difference will be between countries that have high performing modern states and those that do not and leaders who can inspire trust and common purpose. So, uh, I mean, essentially, it's sounds as if you think the same this little bit further into the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wonder what you think the assessment is, for example, between China and the United States. Well, um, you know, the, the thing that I did not understand adequately when I wrote The End of History and The Last Man that I tried to correct in, in my two political order books was the importance of having a modern state. And by a modern state, I mean one that is impersonal, high capacity, that can deliver services, protect the community, and, and do this in a, uh, in a coherent um, fashion that treats citizens reasonably equally. I didn't appreciate how important that was to the success of a political system. Americans are, uh, you know, they've got a political culture that tells them the state is bad, distrust the state. And especially for Americans, it's something they don't take seriously, but I think they need to. And I think COVID 
has really underlined that, uh, that, you know, um, states that have good capacity in their health systems are going to do well, but it's not enough. Uh, so if you have an incompetent leader at the top, uh, if you have a highly polarized society that interprets everything in polarized terms, uh, you're not going to get a good response no matter how good your state capacity is. And so I think both of those other more intangible factors, that is to say good leadership and a high degree of social trust are also important. And you have that in a number of democracies. I think in South Korea, in Germany, in New Zealand, you know, Canada, all of those are societies where all three of those things, state capacity, trust, and good leadership have all come together. Uh, and they have, uh, you know, and they have done relatively well. I don't think that the American failure necessarily tells you much about democracy per se, but it does tell you something about the state of America at this particular historical uh, juncture. And unfortunately, it's not a very pretty story. I think that we have been in this period of um, political decay. I think it's gotten worse over the last four years. And unless we figure out a way of reversing it, I think it is going to lead to a long-term decline of American society relative to others. And you don't let us off the hook either as individuals. You say that you know, we have the responsibility of protecting and fighting for democratic institutions, for a liberal world order, as well as the ideas that sustain them. And you know, I guess that that's part of the impetus behind this new uh, project, American Purpose. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, in the end of history in the last man, there's a chapter that says no democracy without Democrats. And, you know, what I was arguing back then was that there's no inexorable historical modernization process that is going to drive democracy forward, regardless of whether people actually believe in it or not. If people don't believe in it, if they're not willing to take risks and commit themselves to building and sustaining democracy, it isn't going to happen. Uh, and that's why uh, I think that, you know, when you get severe threats to democracy that have, of the sort that have arisen, both from authoritarian challengers like Russia and China, or from internal challengers like these uh, populists, that unless people mobilize, unless you've got good leadership, unless you struggle, and also unless you win the battle of ideas, uh, you're not going to succeed. And so I think American purpose uh, was founded with that in mind, that we need to defend um, classical liberalism uh, against people that threaten it, both on the nationalist populist right and on the woke progressive left. I think that uh, we're in a moment uh, where that challenge is particularly pronounced and people need to step up uh, and you know go back to a full-throated defense of uh, the kinds of liberal institutions that I think are really the, in the long run, the only ones that uh, will be sufficient to uh, allow, you know, a, a good outcome for the kind of societies we live in today. And surely the best defence of pluralism and liberal democracy is in fact to practice pluralism and liberal democratic values by debating ideas. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. Now, in today's world, the idea space has been severely affected by the rise of the internet, by social media, by these technologies that allow the amplification 
uh, bad ideas. And I think we've been suffering from that in uh, in recent years, and we've not really figured out how to uh, how to overcome that. Uh, but certainly, you can't find the right technical means if you don't have the right message. And so I think what we're trying to do is to get the right message uh, out there and to build, you know, real democratic discourse uh, uh, around them. And, you know, hopefully that will contribute to the survival uh, of liberal democracy. Well, the essay is Liberalism and Its Discontents, The Challenges from the Left and the Right. It's written by my guest, Francis Fukuyama, and you'll find it on our website, AmericanPurpose.com. The End of History and the Last Man, updated and with a new afterword, is published by Penguin UK. But for now, Frank, it's always such a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.